Welcome to the Midwest Football Podcast, episode 41. As we record this on January 23rd, 2024, brutal winter weather is again gripping the Midwest, especially here in Detroit, where the only thing saltier than the roads are the Rams and Cowboys fans. On this show, though, we are all about every one of the NFL's upper Midwest teams. The Bears, Bengals, Browns, Colts, Lions, Packers, Steelers, and Vikings. I'm Joe Smith, a Lions fan all my life and never more proud of my team. With me, as always, is my friend and broadcast partner, a man so tough, he vacations in his hometown Chicago in January, Brian Rosenquist. Hello, Midwestlanders and friends, and a happy Hulkaversary to the 40th year anniversary of when Hulkamania started, brother. Sorry, Joe just <laughs> dropped that knowledge right before we recorded, so I had to throw that in there. And uh, about my Chicago trip, I was there for about 12 hours, and I said, you know what, I'm good with the snow, let's get in a U-Haul truck and drive back down to Florida in two days. I was helping my buddy move. But uh, it was still good because it wasn't cold enough in Chicago for me during Christmas, so I had to go back again. And, you know, with it being so cold out and Hulk's, the hulk anniversary, it just makes me want to drink some beer standing behind Taylor Swift with my shirt off, but more on that later. <laughs> you'd think your last name was kelsey but if you like the show help our podcast grow by giving us a five-star review commenting sharing us to your social media accounts recommending anybody anything that'll get us more listens we are very grateful for and appreciate deeply you can contact us also to be part of the show from our email, midwestfootballpodcast at gmail.com, whether you want to prop up your team or just flame another city, whatever floats your boat. it Whatever you do to interact with us, it really is important. But before we get to the playoff reactions and analysis you come here for, then we, we do want to at least touch on the AFC title game, even though none of the Midwest teams are in it. And we've also got so quite a bit of news going on along the uh, Midwest teams especially in the coaching areas so we wanted to bring that up before we hit the next part starting with the Tennessee coaching job which was filled pretty quickly by Brian Callahan who was formerly the offensive coordinator for Cincinnati Cincinnati now looking for a coordinator well congratulations to Brian Callahan the Bengals have had an obviously a great offense the last few years with Joe Burrow and friends um he comes from what I believe the McVay coaching tree because that's where the uh, head coach came from. I think that was actually a running joke when uh, he got hired was on his bio, the Bengals posted friends with Sean McVay or something like that. So um, he must be smart at offense. Well, he was also, I believe, friends with Peyton Manning, which helped him out. I think he was the quarterback's coach or somewhere barely low level on that staff when he – Peyton Manning, I mean, went to Denver at the end of his career and Peyton just loved him. So uh, I think to hear some of the media reports, that recommendation was real and it was strong and it was influential. Mm. Okay. Well, congratulations, Brian. Um, Tough break Bengals. You got to do some rebuilding by getting a new offensive coordinator. But that's actually a common thing because apparently every NFL team has had to hire a new coordinator at the offensive position since 2022, two years ago whether they get promoted out or uh, let go or canned. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, in just to bring up Detroit real quick in Detroit, we're not used to having nice things. 
So the fact that our offensive coordinator is continually being connected in the rumor mill to other jobs is something that some Lions fans have been freaking out over. And it's, I mean, yeah, if you take an awesome one and replace him with a bum, there's a drop off, but you know, there's something good franchises do. Oh, you mean Philadelphia? (laughs) Cycling their offensive and defensive coordinator for the second year in a row. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a good, pretty good safe bet that the uh, Lions uh, offensive coordinator will be the next big name to get a job. Um, shall we move on to other guys who have gotten a position? Uh, the Raiders have taken the interim tag off Antonio Pierce and promoted him to the full-time coach after the uh, second half of last season. So congratulations to Antonio Pierce. Yeah, this is a position that ne- kind of needed to happen because the players were literally threatening mutiny if the Davises went in a different direction here. And Davis himself went on whatever and said, look, my track record of this has not been great. So I wanted to listen to the players on this one. Also, I feel like he's already paying a bunch of all ex coaches, a lot of money. And uh, I think John Gruden and uh, Josh McDaniels and uh, why pay extra ones when you got a guy who did a pretty good job as an intern last year, um, you might save a couple bucks by uh, keeping the status quo for at least one more year, you know? Yeah, I hear that. Uh, they're all they've already gone through a couple Brinks trucks coaches in just the last couple of years. I, they might still be paying the first one. No salary oh. cap, but it's still money comes from somewhere. Exactly. And apparently, uh, Brian Flores, defensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings, will be staying put as the defensive coordinator in Vikings next year. Yeah, uh, it was widely expected when Brian Flores took this job that it was going to be a very short-term stopover, a one-year gig. People thought he was kind of overqualified. Mm-hmm. But the when the Minnesota defense and offense kind of imploded in the second half of the year, a lot of that stuff dried up. He was kind of, Flores was rumored to go to maybe the Patriots and maybe the Raiders, but there's no talk of him going anywhere now. So we just pretty much have to presume that he's going to stay in Minnesota, which is probably good news for the Vikings because he did a pretty respectable job with really not great personnel, especially in the back half. Yeah. And in his history is really impressive. I mean, he took over in uh, as a defensive coordinator in new England after Matt Patricia went to Detroit. Sorry to bring that up. And uh, we'll talk more good things about Detroit later. Um, and he did a really good job uh, stonewalling Minnesota, uh, the the Rams in the Super Bowl and winning a title. And then he got his own head coaching job in Miami, where allegedly there's a lawsuit possibly pending. He won too many games when the management wanted him to tank. And he basically got fired for allegedly got fired for winning too many games in Miami. And then, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a stigma on him because he was suing the league for it. And a lot of people thought maybe they didn't want people didn't want to hire him. But uh, Tomlin and the Steelers gave him a second chance, brought him as a coordinator, I believe. And then he took the Minnesota job and did a pretty good job at every step of the way. He's done a good job that I've known of him in the last four stops. Yeah, a lot of people are kind of suggesting that the reason he hasn't gotten more looks as a head coach is uh, retaliation. If you sue one team, then every team looks at it as that could be me. And billionaires have an ego. Yeah. That is true. Uh, speaking of you know, coaches that were inexplicably canned, the Browns went to town at 
the middle of last week, shortly after we recorded and fired their offensive coordinator, Alex Van Pelt. They fired their running backs coach. They fired their tight ends coach and apparently ticked off a lot of players in the process. I, I don't blame the players. I don't understand this one. The Browns had a magical run to get to the playoffs on the strength of a fourth string free agent quarterback in Joe Flacco, third string tailbacks and uh, number four and five offensive tackles. Those are arguably the most important positions on offense. And they kept winning games. I know the defense carried them, but the offense was pretty good in spurts. The defense carried him at home. On offense, it was Joe Flacco throwing to a lot of David Njoku, who had his best season as a pro. Oh, and the then tight they end? Just, yeah, and then they just canned his coach. And then Jerome Ford was pretty good at running back. And he's at least at least early in the run. They kind of the running backs did kind of dry up once teams realized that the offensive line was beat up and the running backs were not exactly special anymore but i mean they they got their stuff out of them yeah cream hunt wasn't explosive but that's why he was available we we saw that right right they they re-signed him because they needed a body yeah and that was after chubb went down any other thoughts on that or should we go on to the next no i i don't know who the browns are going to get to be their offensive coordinator i mean who was the offensive coordinator for uh for Deshaun Watson when he was in Houston. Maybe they can get that guy because that seems to be the only thing that's going to work for him. There you go. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and there's a lot of people looking for offensive coordinators, and it's hard to find them because the good ones immediately get snapped up to be uh, head coaches, as we see in Tennessee, and the bad ones get fired um, early, as we saw in Chicago. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, coaching search goes. Good luck to the Browns. Yeah, the Carolina Panthers decided to promote uh, their assistant GM, Dan Morgan, who is a star linebacker there for the Panthers uh, years ago. And yeah, I'm not sure that with what was going on, that this is a promote from within situation in Carolina. Um, I'm hoping, you know, my initial thought when I heard this, because, you know, my sarcastic, cynical self Mm -hmm. was like, Oh, okay. They must have promoted the one guy that still wanted young. <laughs> right? Other than the owner. I mean I mean he's the, the yes man because the owner wanted him. Blamed yeah. everyone else and didn't want Yeah, if you can, you know, the the very powerful only the very powerful and very stupid change the facts to fit their opinion. So this might be a case of change the front office to fit your opinion. I don't know. I hope it's not that, but it sure would seem to be par for the course for uh, this organization i mean this is interesting because i actually even as a bears fan i was worried carolina was probably a dark horse runner um dark horse to win the afc south last nfc south last year because just because it was so awful well not just because of that but the panthers were like an eight and eight win team they were playing well under their interim coach and they had a really good offensive line. They had a really good defense. So if you dropped a halfway competent quarterback in there, like a C.J. Stroud or something, or even Anthony Richardson, you would probably win the division like C.J. Stroud and the Texans did. 
But instead, their offensive line fell apart. Um, Bryce Young was absolutely awful. They're, they they let uh, Deontay Foreman go, who is way better than what we whatever we saw out of Miles Sanders and uh, Chuba Hubbard. Like they they made some very bad personnel decisions, and that's what cost them the game. I know Frank Reich, the coach, was the fall guy, but they didn't get any better when he left because it's it was a roster problem. So it's interesting exactly. that they promoted a guy that was. There, you know, I mean, the the only thing the Panthers fans can hope for is that this was the one guy saying, don't do what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the best hope that Panthers fans have is he was the one sane man in the room. Unfortunately, it probably wasn't because I think they did what the owner wanted and he is uh, no comment. Yeah, speaking he of owners. It. Decision making so far, as brilliant as he was in investments and stock trades and banking that got him in a position where he could buy a team, his football decisions haven't been so good so far. Speaking of owners, shall we move on to the next? Yeah, Jim Ursay. Uh it was reported this week and a little bit towards the end of last week that he had a very serious medical scare last des- December where he was found unresponsive and we're finally finding out in the last couple days that it was a possible opioid overdose so first of all we do hope that uh jim ursay gets better soon and can uh recover from this but there you know there's a lot of opioid problems out there if this is a problem that you have please get help so I know we've been overly critical of Jim Ursay and his ownership uh, over the offseason, but the Colts ended up having a very good team and were one game away from uh, making the playoffs. And I hope uh, him and his family, I wish them well, and I hope anybody else who has similar issues can get help and uh, get full recoveries because it has become a very big issue in this country as a whole um, lately with uh, opioids, especially since in the post-pandemic era with uh, fentanyl and other stuff. I don't know what his specifics are. I hope they get better. Yeah, we don't really need to know. Yes, we have been critical of Ursay in the past because he will every so often do something that just makes our heads explode. But the bottom line is, it's with the Colts, somehow it has a way of working out in the end. And we've got the Colts right here right on the cusp of uh, competing for AFC South titles again after a very short turnaround for the foreseeable future, especially if Anthony Richardson develops the way that we think. So, you know, you got to give Ursay some credit for that because somehow they keep in contention. Mm -hmm. But speaking of contenders, let's at least discuss the AFC title game, even though there's no Midwest teams. We had Mahomes, we had Allen, we had freezing temperatures, we had Kelsey belly dancing, we had Taylor Swift, we had, this game had just about everything, except higher ratings than the Lions game. Boom. Wow, whoa, the Lions outrated Taylor Swift and the Swifties? Wow, Swifties are uh, losing their uh, losing their groove. But uh, I think the highlight of the game to me was the clip where they cut away to Taylor Swift and Jason... Kelsey, brother of Travis Kelsey, was just shirtless chugging a beer behind her, which uh, is hilarious (laughs) because if this was a rom-com, this would be the part of the middle of the movie where she starts questioning 
where she meets the family and she's like, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Travis, your brother was shirtless, drugging a beer during the game, jumping down out of the booth, running around in the stadium, like exuded security, crawling back into the booth. Even before the game, he was uh, pre-gaming with all the Bills Mafia and stuff. So, uh... <laughs> so by that point, Captain Caveman there was probably higher than a kite. Yeah. I just got to say, um, uh, the best thing that happened to me was the Eagles lost. So I got to see Jason Kelsey completely unhinged uh, off uh, steal the show of that game. <laughs> yes. Which, but, you know, as for the game itself, was very good for the record. It was, again, yeah, it was field goal by Tyler Bass, wide right, awkward, sound familiar for Bills fans. Um, uh. this is, I mean, there's a lot of debates. Who is the most tortured fan base between Buffalo, Minnesota, Detroit, and Cleveland. And this adds to the torture because having a good team that loses painfully, you know, that gets close every time. I mean, Buffalo is probably the definition of that. Like the lions might have the lot of losing seasons, most losses, but Buffalo might have the most hope that gets crushed at the very end. I mean, we saw Tyreek Hill, 13 seconds play a couple of years ago against the Chiefs, if you remember. And then we saw this one where Stefan Diggs dropped like a 60-some yarder and then the field goal was missed and everyone's blaming Josh, poor Josh Allen, who can't win the big game, despite doing everything he can to put them in position to win. Yeah, well, we've also got, you know, a lot of fans are blaming anything with two legs and a Bills helmet. So... That's and fans are going to fan. I mean, I'm not going to kill them for that, you know, unless they're, you know, taking it to extremes where you, you know, you don't talk about families, you don't talk about, you know, you don't talk about end of life, you don't talk about, you know, that's you, you don't talk, you don't come after a guy's money, but fans have the right to be passionate as long as it's halfway respectful and not a disgrace to your entire fan base. So I think that, you know, a lot of focus on the national media has been on the Bills' shortcomings, but I think that this is one of these weird cheap seasons where we all focus on the lack of receiver help, but they did a great job building the uh, defense, and Pat Mahomes and Andy Reid are still Pat Mahomes and Andy Reid. So I guess gotta, I got to be honest, I feel like Mahomes is starting to get into that Tom Brady uh, era where – you just feel like even if Tyler Bass makes that field goal, Pat Mahomes had plenty of time and timeouts to drive the ball down the field to win the game anyways. So Yeah, it's not a shoe-in that Buffalo wins that game if the field goal goes in. The yeah. fact that he missed it ended it right there. Yeah, and but... this is feeling very much like the old Brady versus Manning, um, but now you have the chiefs dominating all these close wins instead of the Patriots over the Colts, you know, but if, if the bills keep it together, I think that this is a team that can poke through like the Oh six Colts did and get that super bowl win to make everything a lot to validate the rest of the era. And the bills should not panic. I don't think they should get rid of their head coach. That's there are a lot of rumors. I think the chiefs are a very good team with a great quarterback and very good defense, and they are just always going to be there. Forget what you think they should do. Do you think they will 
make a large move to try and get over the top, like bring in a new coach, like move on from Stefan Diggs and do something else. I have already started hearing the murmurs that this might be a Belichick location if they get rid of Sean McDermott. So I think that's a tough one, though, because I would if I'm going to can McDermott for all he's done here. I would want to make absolutely sure that I had Belichick in the bag before mm-hmm. I made that move. And let's let's take a little time to reflect on the Bills era recently. Between ni- early 90s to about five, six years ago, they had a really rough stretch where they were not making the playoffs or having any winning season. And they ended up making a playoff game with uh, Nathan Peterman as their quarterback at one point under Sean McDermott. And he helped develop Sean, uh, Josh Allen into a really good franchise. They've been very good competitors for the Super Bowl the last five years. And this is like reminds me of the 90s where Michael Jordan ruined so many careers because they just couldn't poke through the all-time great. But otherwise, I think if Pat Mahomes and Andy Reid weren't there, I think you would have we would have seen the Bills and the Josh Allen in the Super Bowl by now. And I just, you know, and and I would keep I would stay the course, and I, I think they're going to eventually break through at some point. But I worry that they're going to do something crazy and you know get desperate and try to win now. And I don't think they should because Allen will be there for an extra five, 10 years and their window will always be open as long as you have a Josh Allen or a Pat Mahomes. We're going to see these guys again or a Joe Burrow or a Lamar Jackson, which, by the way, that's why the AFC is so tough because you have so many great quarterbacks and young quarterbacks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as far as the title game itself is concerned, we do have the Ravens on the other side who pulled away from uh, a game but one-dimensional Houston team. Uh, We don't really need to talk a ton about that game. It was more Baltimore stomping and looking scary. Yeah, it was. they came out a little bit rusty because they took the week off, but ultimately they were just the better team. And Houston, you had a great run. You have a rookie quarterback. You have a great future. And um, this is what happens. They, They won a playoff game, and they ran into a buzzsaw. And, uh, and, uh, you know, if this is uh Michigan's year, what if this is Harbaugh's year and both Harbaugh brothers win a championship or two games? Oh, that would be that? something. Yep. Yep. Midwest football podcast at gmail.com. Let's get to the games that we uh, want to definitely focus on. And that would be the green Bay Packers who put up just the gamest of game efforts up against the San Francisco 49ers, giving that number one seed San Francisco team the scare of a lifetime, but they did unfortunately fall just short at the end. This is one of those things where I I have trouble putting myself in the shoes of a Packer fan because one standpoint, you made the playoffs with a first time, uh, first year uh, quarterback, not a rookie, but you know, after Aaron Rodgers, you won a game, you won definitively against Dallas and they were, you'd think all of that said they'd be happy, but I think they're going to come away from this very disappointed because I believe there was a stat. It was the Packers had made it into the red zone five times before the Niners made it into the red zone for the first time. 
And to lose a game like that is pretty brutal. And you can't blame the defense and Joe Barry on it this time because the offense was kind of coming up short, coming up, uh, shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, maybe there's some questionable calls on fourth and one and stuff like that. But, like, I mean, those games are hard to swallow. Like, it's actually – I feel like it's easier to lose the way the Texans did, who had a very similar season to the Packers with a young roster, young quarterback, overachieving and winning a game. But if you're the Packers, you're going, man, we could have beaten the Niners. We'd be going to Detroit. We're familiar with them. Like, this could be a Super Bowl year out of nowhere. And now it's just uh, – you know, whereas nobody in Houston saying we were this close to winning a Super Bowl. You know what I mean? It's worth pointing out that the Packers on Thanksgiving basically obliterated Detroit in a game that had a final score that ended up being closer than it actually was. Mm -hmm. So the Packers have every right to feel that way because they could have definitely won this game with a couple more bounces going their way. The and I think a big chunk of that is the defense. Now, Debo going out early in the game for San Francisco was huge. Yes. Because to me, Debo Samuel is the cog that makes everything else in the entire 49ers offense go. The Niners lost three games this regular season. The two that Debo missed and the one he went out in. Hmm. You should be his agent because you're just making him money. Because I agree with what you're saying. Debo is a game changer. And I mean, yeah, the entire 49ers offense, uh, for those who may not be familiar with them because we don't cover them very much, works on unpredictability and versatile players. So they've got a tight end that can block or can be extremely dangerous as a pass catcher. They've got a running back that is great between the tackles, or they can straight up use him as a slot receiver. Mm -hmm. They've got Debo who can go on the outside, come in work at the slot, or even take snaps out of the backfield and get positive yardage, even in short yardage situations. So you have absolutely no idea what the play is based on the personnel to an extent that no other team in the NFL does. You take Debo out, you lose a huge amount of their uh, versatility. And then the way that Green Bay tends to play defense with safeties back, that also pretty much took out their downfield game for this game. A lot of when San Francisco did get a big play, it was a short to intermediate pass and then a broken tackle. I mean, it could be worse if Debo is playing because he is one of the yak leaders, which is uh stands for yards after catch. Um, because he is really dynamic with the ball, no matter where you get him the ball. And uh, do you think this uh, you know, Debo aside, do you think this was uh, Joe Barry's best game as a defensive coordinator? I well, I definitely think it was his best game in the second half of the year for sure. So, what do you think made it so good? We've talked a lot about how Green Bay loves to use like five-man front, safe, safeties back, and give up a lot of the underneath. And that worked really well in the closing games of the, of the postseason. But they actually did not do that here. In this game, they did play five-man fronts, especially in running downs, but they varied back and forth between five-man fronts, four-man fronts. They used a lot of varying personnel to kind of match whatever was going on in San Francisco, and it was very effective.
I think Jair Alexander was spending a lot of time on Brandon Ayuk, who's the best pure receiver mm-hmm. that San Francisco has, and kind of wiping him out. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a whole lot else that wasn't running backs and wide receiver and uh, tight ends with Diva with Debo out. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately for them, uh, despite all of that and a great game from Love, although he did have a couple interceptions, uh, they did end up falling short to the Niners. Uh, would you blame this on the kicker, Love, the defense, or just the Niners getting well? Uh, I mean, this is just a coin flip game, man. Somebody's got to lose them in the playoffs. And at the end of the day, I mean, as great as Love played he did have two interceptions and the second one was just a head scratcher rolling one way turning around throwing back late over the middle of the field you just cannot make that throw in the nfl let alone the playoffs now i'm not saying that's the only reason because you've got when you have a game that goes like that you know the missed field goal you've got the questionable call here or there. You got just bad execution on one first down somewhere along the way that extends a drive for San Francisco. In a close game like this, you can't just blame one person. It's it's a team effort to lose it. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to even blame the Packers. They gave everything they could to the number one seed who was in the final four last year that basically lost to the Eagles playing with uh, no quarterbacks at one point uh, in that game. So the Niners are a very good team and hats off to them more on them later when we do the previews. And I just got to say, if you're a Packer fan, you're feeling pretty good. Jordan Love, uh, he showed a Josh Allen-like improvement in one season instead of three. Uh, He was a much better quarterback down the stretch. And you have the youngest offense in the NFL to make the postseason, much less win a game. And I think that we're going to start seeing the uh, ESPN and NFL Network and Yahoo and all the other stuff start uh, spinning up the uh, Packers of the team team to – make the big leap next year like the Lions have this year, more on them in a second, and the Eagles did the year before. And I think that any of the hype that they will be earning in the offseason will be well-earned. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I think you said that really well. They've got some decisions to make on the offensive line, which played exponentially better at the end of the year than they did at the beginning. I They've agree. got some decisions to make on defense. They got to figure out if they're going to roll it back with uh, Aaron Jones or what they're going to do at the running back position, because that was to me was the, was the, the rocket fuel for all of this for the second half offense was all of a sudden they had a running game that scared people. And it wasn't just Jordan love dropping back 50 times. An RIP to uh, A.J. Dillon, he'll be a free agent, and I don't think they're picking him back up. He didn't look great. But other than that, the future looks bright. Some will pick him up. He'll get paid. And I do agree with your take on the uh, offensive line. I remember watching the Bears game, the Niners. I think that uh, they did a really good job keeping Jordan Love uh, clean in the pocket and clearing running ways. And Jordan Love and Aaron Jones uh, looked like stars. They took full advantage of it. So props to them. Let's talk now about the uh, the other NFC game, the Buccaneers having to travel up to north to Detroit to play uh, my Lions in the cold and snow, according to one Tampa reporter. 
How many? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, up in the cold, still dome stadium with no snow and heater heating. Um, how many people watched this game? Was it? It was over forty million. Uh, is if you include streaming and everything else. Yeah, it's really good for a divisional round, possibly the best. So it's the highest. It's the most watched divisional game in uh thirty years, and. It in the city of Detroit, which was by far the highest share, of course, it drew, you know, four. Oh, oh it drew a forty share, which means that forty percent of televisions in the city wow. were tuned to this game. I don't think we've seen a share that high since there was only three networks in the fifties and sixties, and everyone had to watch thirty three. Every network had roughly a thirty three percent share to start with. Yeah. Most there were you weren't watching anything over the internet, and most people didn't have cable. Yeah, exactly. Or even UHF, uh, like Fox and stuff, or the Great Weird Al video or the Weird Al Yankovic movie. Yes, that too. So, what's your take? Uh, let's start with you, and I'll let you go because um, I feel like this is a uh, chance for you and the entire city of Detroit to celebrate because uh, it's been a magical year. I'm not saying it's over. Let's keep it hot. What's your take on the game? How you feeling? This was a lot of people in Detroit were confident going on cocky going into this game because. The Lions, when they went into Tampa, they had, I think, five or six starters out with injury, including uh, they didn't see Jameer Gibbs at all. Tampa didn't the first time. Montgomery went out in the middle of the game. They ended up with 40 yards rushing. Jared Goff went off, and it was a controlled blowout. And people were in Detroit were recognizing we've got all those players back now. But they were also not recognizing that Tampa had a whole bunch of players that they were missing in that game, too. So we ended up with, you know, a, something closer to what I figured was a very competitive game between the two teams. Uh, Vita Vea did exactly what we thought that they pretty well controlled the power running game, the running game and the tackles. Anytime Jameer Gibbs went in there, he was getting smashed. Uh, they were keeping Montgomery to relatively normal amounts, you know, two, three, maybe four yards and limiting the big play. So this became a Jared Goff game and he delivered again. The Lions won this game on offense by Jared Goff looking off the defense and throwing over the middle. This was a Jared Goff game to Jameer Gibbs, to Jamison Williams, to Sam Laporta, to... Josh Reynolds to Amon Ross St. Brown, and they just abused Tampa over the middle where forcing their linebackers to play coverage against elite man-beating receivers. And that was what the Lions is slow to start, but what they eventually figured out in the third and fourth quarter. And it led to three straight touchdowns that basically won the game. They had a punt and a kneel down drive after that. So I actually watching this game just it's kind of interesting. We had two former number one overall picks at quarterback, Baker Mayfield for Tampa, Jared Goff for the bank, uh, the the Lions. In a rare matchup of two former number one overall picks who won playoff games for a team that did not draft them, 
for different ways. So they're both very interesting careers. Both of them scapegoated and both of them look great. Golf looked composed, put up good numbers, like 280 some yards and two touchdowns. Baker Mayfield put up two, three forty and three touchdowns. But I don't think the stats tell the tale because in that, third second half when you the aforementioned three straight touchdown drives jared golf was in complete control they basically said you know what we can't run the ball up the middle against vita bay we trust our veteran to distribute the ball to the open guy and march down the field and jared golf just systematically shredded the buccaneers defense when the game mattered most and i think that baker mayfield had some good stats but to me, this was more of a Mike Evans game where Mike Evans just made some big plays and kept them in the game. And it was a little more, more as methodical as the Lions were. I think the Buccaneers were more big play oriented where the point where I'll ask you the same question, but I'm going to weigh in already. Once the Bucks came within eight points after the punt, did you – have a lot of fear that Baker Mayfield was going to engineer a drive to score a touchdown, get a two point conversion. And then the Lions wouldn't answer with a, at least a field goal. Cause as a neutral fan, I just didn't think it was going to happen. I just, I, I, I just thought that golf was in complete control of that game. And I had the full confidence that he would answer in the way that I thought Kelsey would have answered in the other game we mentioned, if uh, the Buc- Buffalo had made that field goal. Well, I'm going to answer that in a couple parts. First of all, I was way more into this game than any Lions game I've watched in the last probably 10 years. Rightfully so. Uh, the last the last football game I was this into was when the Buckeyes were in the uh, were playing not, not even when they were playing Georgia. It was when they were like on their run. Because normally, let me tell you something. When you're a Lions fan, you learn to watch games analytically. Because if you're living and dying by every success and failure, you're going to be doing a lot of dying. (laughs) Uh, So, but I got to say, when this game was going on, I was, it was in the back of my mind, wait, this is getting close. We can screw this up. There's a way that this can, can go the wrong way. But I didn't really feel like it was going to happen at a rational level. My body was acting like it might. And, you know, the pulse was starting to get a little quick and I'm standing up and I'm walking around the room. But mentally, I was like, I think we got this. Yeah, and that that was my take as a neutral observer. And I got a question for you. We've seen this a couple of times now. This is just a coaching strategic standpoint. When the Buccaneers scored their touchdown to pull within eight, do you agree with them going for two in that situation? Personally, I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have just taken – I would have gone for the extra point because then either you're down by seven, and if he misses it, then you know you have to go for two if you scored another touchdown. But if you want to go for two for the win and you're down by seven, then you score the touchdown. That's when you go for two when it's the end of the game, you have the momentum and the defense is at its most tired. The defense will be more tired if you score back-to-back touchdowns because you kept them on the field for most of the last eight minutes of the game, in my opinion. That's when you go for it. I don't think it was a good idea for the Bucs to go for two in that situation. 
ultimately it only mattered to gamblers who had the six and a half point spread because they were trying to cover it in that play. But we don't care about that. We're here for the bottom line in this fourth podcast. So I thought that was kind of dumb. It didn't matter in the long run, but I don't know. That was my thing. Yeah. And also Baker I'm old Mayfield. school. Mm-hmm. I'm old school. So I'm kicking the extra point in that situation. I get the logic because if you miss the two point conversion in that play, the game's not instantly over because you've got another shot to go for two and a tie. And the percentage shot of making a two point conversion in the league this year is 55%. So the odds are you'll make one of them. Mm hmm. But I, I get also, the logic, but I still totally agree with everything you said. And like I said, I'm I'm kicking the extra point here. Oh, I was just going to add one more thing is also Baker Mayfield's a shorter quarterback and they typically struggle on short down and distance throwing. So it does limit your uh, offensive play calls, which I think lower the odds of getting it. Yeah, that's one of the one of the many things that analytics does not take into account is personnel or time of the game very often or injuries or momentum fatigue. You got it. But speaking of the defense, though, I also want to, you know, give a credit, give credit and shout out to the other reason the Lions won this game, and that was their edge rushers, which we've been very critical of all the way through. They just kept getting pressure on Baker Mayfield from every direction. Uh, you had what was it Houston with a you you had Melifonwu, you had. Uh, Aiden Hutchinson with a game-crushing sack that took him out of field goal range in the third quarter. The Lions scored because of Jared Goff and the masterful way that he was running the middle of the field on offense. They kept Tampa from scoring more because they would get their big plays and then they would take a big play loss with a sack or a pressure. And that's how the Lions ended up going to their first NFC championship game in 30 years. And and I think that the way you're describing it is exactly kind of what I was thinking of where the Lions offense just seemed more methodical and control, whereas the Buccaneers were more herky-jerky, big play dependent to make up for a big play by the defense, and it just didn't seem as sustainable for them to do it. So I wasn't surprised when the push came to shove. Uh, the Lions made a game-ending interception with, you know, because it just seems like when you're dependent on big plays, that's what's going to happen. Yep. Huge victory for the Lions. We've got the the fans were going nuts again. It was an incredibly loud stadium. I believe it's the new indoor record for loudest sound ever recorded in an indoor venue at 133 decibels which is like a jet plane taken off that's painful the reporters (laughs) were saying it was 36 hours later before their headache went away and that was national reporters midwest football podcast at gmail.com we're going to shift our focus here we're still talking about the lions because they're our last midwest team standing And we are going to shift the focus from last week's game to this week's game where they have to travel out to Santa Clara and take on the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, Let's break this one down. And the first thing I'm thinking of is the injuries, because we already talked about Debo Samuel. 
but we've also got a significant injury to Jonah Jackson, the left guard for the Lions, who may not play. Um, Frank Ragnow, the center, fought through incredible pain. I think he was the player of the game, in my opinion, certainly on offense. So we've got possibly two guys out of the interior of the offensive line for the Lions. We got a huge playmaker for San Francisco. So definitely keep an eye on that injury report as the week goes on. But let's assume for a minute that everybody plays. How do you think the Lions do out there? So I think this is a really tough one because there's going to be two major keys to, in my opinion, is it's going to come down to the two quarterbacks. And with Brock Purdy, he has his MVP candidacy has turned into a pumpkin because we saw a couple bad games and he was not great last week against the Packers. And there were a lot of stories about him not being able to throw the ball in the rain and taking off his gloves and it made him improve a little bit, but it never stood, never sounded like he actually got a confident grip on the ball. And this is going to be outdoors in San Francisco again. And there's a really good chance it rains because it does rain there a lot, especially in the winter. So if you have similarly mucky commit conditions, that could really hurt Purdy, especially if someone like Aiden Hutchinson is pressuring him, which you, you don't see someone like that um, green, on Green Bay. On the flip side, I think you've said it before earlier in the season, you know, it's been a while because the Lions have been playing so well, but the way to get to golf is to rattle him. And if you have a couple offensive line injuries and you got this defensive line with Vernon Hargraves and uh, one of the Nick Bosa and Chase Young and other guys that are coming, Armstead, and if they can get to golf and rattle him, this could be a game that, in my opinion, is one of the hardest to predict because it's going to come down to do you do you or do you not pressure the quarterback and does he or does he not play well? Do, do we see Jared Goff from last week where he was super composed? Do we see him turn back into a pumpkin? Do we see Brock Purdy competently getting the ball out to Debo and McCaffrey underneath and letting them make big plays? Or do we see him turn into a pumpkin and fluster? And Honestly, I think they're all in play. Do you have any thoughts on that? As I did the most yeah, it, Vegas breakdown. Very, in a very real way, this whole game is strength versus strength, weakness versus weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it so challenging to try and predict. Yes. You've got – you highlighted the pass rush of San Francisco versus the Lions offensive line uh, and how very quickly – Goff gets into trouble or creates trouble for himself when he gets pressured whatsoever. Um, on the offensive side, you've got a defensive front that is uh, for San Francisco that D if they do have Debo Samuel there, then there's a lot of versatility. You've got the Lions running around on defense trying to figure out who's going where. And that could potentially be a lot of trouble. But at the same time, they don't have the deep threat, you know, physical alpha receiver other than, again, maybe Debo, that's going to sit there and burn Cam Sutton five or six times a game again. That was something you kind of touched on last week was how 
the last couple weeks, last month of the season, the top dog receiver has burned the Lions. And we saw that with Mike Evans last week. We saw it with Justin Jefferson twice, et cetera. Uh, Puka Nakua two weeks ago. I don't, as good as Ayuk and Dubo are, I don't think they're really going to, I don't see them taking. They're not that level. They're not that. And it's going to be interesting because if Purdy's going to have a good game, it's going to be because Samuel's there. I think that Debo Samuel injury is going to swing it because if I if if Brock Purdy can get rid of the ball quickly underneath to Debo McCaffrey and Kittle, that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Lions defense. If Samuel Samuel isn't there, it's going to be a lot easier to cover the underneath guys and I don't know if Purdy is really going to be taking advantage going deep to Ayuk like he could in some other matchups. Yeah, there's there's a lot of games where you you were throwing 30, 40 yards downfield to Ayuk or to McCaffrey, and there's literally nobody else in the screen because people are so concerned about all the underneath stuff, the slants, the dump offs, the screens, the swing passes. Yeah, and Debo opens up a lot of that. It's going to be a really, really good game, in my opinion. I think it's the best of the playoffs based on just looking at it on paper. And that includes, you know, the the Rams were very good with the uh, Lions on paper, too. Those were probably... Yeah, yeah if, if uh, sh- uh, shifting gears to the prediction aspect of this, uh, we're not a gambling podcast, but the line opened at, I believe... Lions plus seven, and if you can get a full seven points, that's something that I would maybe consider betting, even though I don't bet. I actually think that is the better bet. You generally don't want to take the underdogs unless you think they can win, and there's a lot of scenarios where the Lions could win this and at least get within seven points, um, in my opinion. Here is the case for the Lions. First of all, San Francisco has won exactly one game all year by less than 10 points. And it was last week. So if they don't jump on you right away, because they want to come out, they want to smash you in the mouth. They want to run it down your throat. They want to score quickly. They want to make you play from behind and eat their pass rush and make bad things happen. And they pound you. That did not happen to green Bay credit to the Packers. So if, they don't get up on you fast, then you can beat them. Number two, they have not, as I've mentioned before, been very good when Debo Samuel does not play. Number three, the Achilles heel for this Lions team has been mobile quarterbacks. The only times they've gotten killed are quarterbacks where with mobility. All of the other games they've at least been in. You took you take that together. San Francisco is not an airtight stadium. There's going to be lots of Lions there. Fan, lots of Lions fans, I mean. You take all that together and you've got... I'm not saying the Lions are going to win. I think it would be an upset if they won. Because San Francisco is a very good team. But there are plenty of... There are multiple avenues where the Lions can come out of, can come out of here with a win. That being said, the Lions last won a road playoff game 68 years ago. I believe it was San Francisco. 
And that was the year they won their last title. This is another stop on the Lions versus history tour. But will they win? What do you think? I think that if Debo plays, I think he's going to be limited. And I think that matters. And I think that it's going to come down to the quarterbacks. What I've seen out of Jared Goff is he has been very composed. And I did not see the this vaunted defensive line for the Niners put a lot of pressure on Jordan Love. So I think that the uh, Lions offensive line, even banged up, is more than capable of doing what the Packers did. And I think Goff is a veteran. He's been to the Super Bowl before, and he looked very much composed last week. And I think that he could do the same. And I don't think Brock Purdy has been as impressive as of late in high pressure games. I could be wrong. I still think it's an upset set, but I am actually going to go with the lions on the upset because, Hey, if you're going to exercise your demons, you got to make a big uh, upset win on the road. A la when like the Red Sox, what came down from Oh three to beat the Yankees uh, in 2004. For purposes of this podcast. Yeah. I think I'm going to go out on the limb and pick the Lions here. Uh, I There's a very good chance I'm wrong for reasons that I've discussed. Because if Goff gets rattled, he can self-destruct in a hurry. But I don't think he will. He's proved me wrong over the second half of this season. I think he's a veteran in his prime, and I think he's seen a lot, a lot more yeah. than Brock Purdy has. And I think Purdy's I think... a similar arc, but I don't think he's there yet. I think he's gotten comfortable enough with his place in the Lions that he's not deathly afraid of making mistakes anymore. It's a whole lot harder to spook him than it was even two months ago. Mm -hmm. And the the second half where they put the game on his shoulders and he came through like a like a seasoned veteran, it was very much like watching Mahomes against Buffalo the same weekend. Now I'm not saying he's Mahomes, but seeing that composure is something I love seeing in a quarterback. And he was using all of his receivers. He was making, you know, if he can go to beyond just Sam Laporta and, and Amon Ross St. Brown like he did last week, I think the Lions are a very tough team to stop. Oh, I, I almost forgot to mention this, that maybe you didn't get it, because the Lions did add one possibly key piece of ammunition, and that was Zach Ertz is now a Lion coming to the practice squad, his uh, – Tight ends coach in Arizona. His first one is now tight ends coach for the Lions. Also gives divisional familiarity with the 49ers and a little bit more insight into what kinds of things that they do. And just a solid veteran at this point. His stage in his career could make some plays off the bench. Yeah, yeah they signed yeah. him because exactly. it looks like both the second string and third string tight end for the Lions are going to be out for San Francisco. So yeah. they needed somebody. And that's assuming they activate him from the practice squad. Last I checked, he was practice squad, but right. But the anticipate they are they are anticipating activating him. Veterans like this get activated quickly. We saw Dalvin Cook play in Baltimore effectively this weekend. <laughs> Very true. Yep. So it looks like we both got the Lions. We'll definitely both be rooting for them as the Midwest. But that's all the time we have here for this very special. NFC title game edition of the Midwest football podcast win or lose. We'll be talking about it same time next week. So please keep listening for us and to us. We are very grateful every time you uh, join us here on the podcast. Thank you also to Raymond for his uh, intro and outro music for our show. 
Call to me off of his album, Wherever Digital Music is Sold. Thank you, Chris Brandley, for our logos on social media. But it is locker room time uh, until we can talk with you about what happened in San Francisco and preview the Super Bowl. We will see you later. I miss you already. 